I'd ask that you take God's word in your hands and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And we are in the middle of a series that we've entitled Empty, This Changes Everything, where we look at uh, the change that has taken place in the life of each of the participants of that first Easter, all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by learning through their example how we might be changed with regards to that truth as well, even though we are now 2,000 years uh, set apart from that time, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and resurrected from the grave, is still a message that changes every bit of who we are and can give us hope and joy in a world of trouble and pain. So let's go ahead and look to John chapter 20, and we're going to read uh, verses uh, 19 through 23. I'm going to ask now that you've sat down and gotten comfortable to stand up one more time uh, as we look at our text uh, together. It tells us, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed him his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your place. And Lord, we thank you for the words that you have uh, left for us in your holy word that tell us of that first Easter Sunday night of the situation that was before the disciples, the fear and the worry that they had, Lord, because they had seen you go to the cross. And Lord, now word was getting out that uh, the tomb was empty. And Lord, they began to realize as you appeared before them that you had risen just as you said you would. Lord, we are amazed at the change that took place in the life of the disciples Those same men who would run for their lives out of fear, out of bewilderment. Lord, the book of Acts chapter 17 says these same men would turn the world on its head. These same men would preach fearlessly with the threat of death and they would do so even to their last dying moments. And because of that change, because they saw you risen from the grave. We are here today. And so, Lord, let us understand that we too can be changed, that we too can go from being locked up to being sent out for you and your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we, just as the disciples, would come to a place where we come face to face with you, and that because of that encounter with the risen Lord, that we may go out full of joy and full of confidence that you are with us, you will never leave us or forsake us, and that as you said in the Great Commission, that surely you are with us always, even to the end of the age. So Lord, because of that, let us be bold to go and make disciples, to teach and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that you are brought glory and fame as a result of the work that we do. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. 
It seems in our world today that the slogan new and improved or extra strength or new more powerful formula seems to be in. Whether it's with our medication or to super absorbent paper towels, our laundry detergent or the latest in the long-lasting batteries, we are always looking for a new formula, a new way to go to a new level with all of the activities of life. We want to be new and improved. We want to see something better than we used to have just days or months beforehand. But what about when it comes to our Christian service, our ministry, our working for Christ? Do we ever look back and say what used to be in the past does not do it for me anymore, but there needs to be an improvement. There needs to be a new level of obedience, a new level of commitment. Do we ever stop and ask, is this all that God has called me to do? Or are we striving? Are we pushing? Are we moving in every way, shape, or form possible to go to new heights and new levels in our service to Jesus Christ? Today we're going to look at the disciples' life. And the disciples are reeling at this point. They find themselves locked up in a room for fear of the Jews. The reason why they're so fearful is they've just taken Jesus, their leader. And these uh, 11 men were well aware that there were many that would be looking for them. That the call of an insurgency was all abounding in Jerusalem. And that because they were so close, that they were uh, companions to this rabbi that they had just crucified, when would the time come when they would begin to look for them? And so behind locked doors, they sat. Behind locked doors, they became ineffective for the work that Jesus had called them to before he was crucified and before he was buried. They found themselves sitting probably in some ways feeling sorry for themselves, probably in some ways uh, quite a bit bewildered at what the next steps were. The text tells us they're afraid. The idea there in the Greek is that they are incredibly afraid. In fact, one commentator said that they were frozen with fear. Now, by putting fear aside for a moment, I want to ask some of you this morning, are you frozen? Are you locked up in your service for God. Oh, you may not be fearful because we live in a country full of freedoms that you will ever get into any kind of trouble as a result of uh, you sharing the gospel. But are there other things in your life that keep you locked up, that keep you from doing the work of the Lord? I think that many of us, including yours, true, uh, yours here as well, that, that, uh, that we find ourselves frozen in ministry. There are many times where I found myself saying no to things that I know I should have said yes to, but I can come up with a a whole litany of excuses. And I want to first observe that today, and I want to look, knowing that the disciples were frozen in fear, and ask the question, number one this morning, what are our setbacks to Christian service? What are our setbacks to Christian service? If you've got an outline, you can follow along with me as we look at this first point. There are many of us today who are not locked up in a physical room, just as the disciples were, but the circumstances of life keep us from the task of productive living and doing the kingdom work. 
Just as the disciples did, we find ourselves concerned with the circumstances of life. And the last thing that we can think about is being sent out to change a world that is in need of changing. And so we have to understand what are those things in our lives that keep us from serving Christ. And then I want to look in our second point at how the disciples were able to be changed as a result of an encounter with Jesus Christ. But let's look at some of these setbacks to service. I want to introduce you once again, I did this a couple of weeks ago, to some friends of mine. And I want to talk about how each of them find themselves being set back from the service that God would have for them. The first one I want to share with you is apathetic April. She's a nice girl, but, but she lacks a lot of passion. Not with regards to the things of this world. She's incredibly passionate about the things that she enjoys to do. She loves spending time with friends and and family. She loves going out and and just hanging out at local coffee shops and doing some shopping. And and she loves uh, just having lots of fun. But when it comes to her relationship with Jesus Christ, when it comes to her using her gifts as a Christian, she's kind of ho-hum. She can really take it or leave it. I mean, there really isn't any kind of real passion in her life. In fact, there's total absence of passion when it comes to her service before the Lord. And so because of that, she rarely finds herself ever saying yes to anything when it comes to ministry or to using her gifts for the cause of Christ. She just finds herself busy doing other things that seem to be more important to her. There's another individual that I want to bring up that is set back from the service that the Lord has, and that individual is Busy Buck. Busy Buck is, is, a, is a good guy. All right, he'll tell you all the time he loves God. He loves the church, and he'll tell you that he uh, wants to serve all the time. And so when you go and you ask him, because you've heard him say, man, I would love to do this, I would love to do that, I would love to be a part of this ministry or that ministry, the same reason is given I would love to, but I can't. And then you'll ask, why? What's going on? And the response will be, I'm too busy. You see, Buck isn't alone. In a recent survey that was done according to Christianity Today, six in ten American evangelicals say that their first response to any kind of Christian service or ministry is, I am too busy. Buck, knowing that serving Christ in ministry is important. He has to find a way, and you've probably been there before where you've asked someone to serve in a ministry or serve uh, in a particular way, and that busy response comes. Then the litany of things that come out uh, begin to overflow. I gotta take the kids here, and there's practice there, and the games are here, and then I've got my uh, night with the guys here, and our opportunity to do this or that, and we could go on for days talking about how busy we are. But then as Buck looks back at his week, when no one is realizing or or watching, he recognizes that his week was filled with wonderful kids' activities, sports and hobbies, and even nights just filled with watching TV and a myriad of things. One of the greatest struggles that we have as Christians is taking our eye off the prize and getting focused in while all of those things that Buck was a part of are good and noble things, they all are secondary in our response to obedience to Christ and our service to him. Now the thing that Buck always is wondering, and you'll hear it anytime Buck gets involved at the church, is that he'll tell you 
how he wants to go to a greater level in his relationship with Jesus Christ. He just wishes he had enough time to do it. That's busy buck. How about optional obedience, Ollie? Now, Ollie's a cousin to apathetic April, and Ollie hears the need to get involved in ministry and service to Christ. He's listening to the message today. But what Ollie has come to appreciate is that Jesus does not give commands. He gives suggestions. And so when Jesus says, I'm sending you out, I want you to go and make disciples of the world. I want you to bear the burdens of others. I want you to use your gifts in the confines of the local church and in ministry. He looks at Jesus and he says, wonderful suggestions, but I don't have to do them because Jesus would never command us to do such things. And so Ali thinks right away that this is why I put money in the offering plate because I'm paying so that the ministry will be done because pastors are commanded to do the work of the ministry. That's their job. Well, what Ali doesn't understand is that when Jesus speaks, we are to listen. When Jesus tells us something, we are to obey. These aren't uh, just wonderful little anecdotes or principles that we can take or leave. But when Jesus says jump, we are commanded to ask the question, how high, and to get going in that. Next, we have ignorant Izzy. Izzy is one who likes to serve, but the problem is, is that she doesn't know where to serve, or how to do it. Who are they to talk to? She has the question, while the heart is ready, it seems that every time that she wants to serve in a particular area, the spot is filled. She asks the question, where do I fit in? So after a couple months of of trying to figure out how she might fit in within the ministry of the church and, and not finding the answers that she's looking for to the questions of how she might get involved, Izzy just kind of Uh, just sits back into her chair. Izzy then turns around and just becomes a spectator, one who now is willing to just be comfortable in sitting and watching others do the work. Then there's ill-equipped Iris. Iris is a lot like Izzy, but what happened is that Izzy was grabbed up right away to help. And Izzy, I'm sorry, Iris, I'm getting my names mixed up here, Uh, Iris was grabbed right away to help. The frazzled director at the church was needing people to fill the spots. And so she grabs a hold of Iris. Why? Because Iris had the two most key components of any service when it comes to Christ and his ministry. Number one, Iris had blood flowing through her veins. And number two, Iris was a warm body. And that's all you need. If you're going to fill a spot, even when it comes to ministry, those are the two things that Iris needed to have. And because she had a heartbeat, she was grabbed up to do the work. Now, no one had asked or even cared how she was gifted. No one really cared if she even wanted to do the role that she found herself in. Let's forget that her passion seemed to be in a whole different set of directions. Iris then is thrown into a role that she probably won't like and she probably isn't gifted for. And as a result of that, Iris, after a couple times of serving, becomes frustrated and unproductive. And she accomplishes little because she finds herself in the wrong spot. She's ill-equipped to do the work that God has for her. The best way to illustrate Iris's issue was what I saw yesterday at my son's soccer game. Noah is a part of a, a community soccer league, and uh, Noah has uh, uh, a record of 0-4 right now. 
And I went to the game and I was watching the game and I gotta be careful because I don't wanna sound like an angry dad who's sitting on the sidelines. But we have a, uh, a, a coach that has never professed never to have ever played a game of soccer in their life. And uh, they had a formation. If you know soccer, usually you try to spread out your, uh, your players. Uh, they had one defender, and then the other ones were doing ring around the rosy uh, at, half, at, at the half uh, midfield area. They lost, I kid you not, 26 to nothing. 26, the referee would set the ball down and they would kick it into the goal and we just sat there like good parents and just tell them to keep playing and, and all of that. And Noah got done and he said, I don't think we've got a good coach. She, she doesn't know what she's doing. And, and it doesn't, doesn't seem like it was last year when we played. And I said, you know, Noah, the issue isn't the coach or the players. You guys are just not in the right positions. And if we could just get you guys in the right position, then you would be able to use the gifts that you've been given to defend against goals, and maybe you might only lose 22 to nothing. <laughs> the church is like Noah's soccer team. We wonder why God isn't working. We wonder why we walk around so defeated so many times, and it's because we have never been strategic at asking the question, where does an individual need to serve, not based on the need of the ministry, but based on how God has uniquely gifted that individual. Sadly, even at Village Bible Church, while I think we do a better job than most at this, we are filled with ill-equipped irises, people who are serving out of duty, and not in the areas where they need to be plugged in. This is why a ministry like place ministry is so important. If you don't know your giftedness, if you don't know where God has uniquely uh, placed you in this world, then you need to find that out. And so if you, if you want more information about that, put that in the friendship prayer. I want to know more about place ministry so I'm not the ill-equipped iris that is in the church. Finally, we have scared Sven. I like Sven. This guy has prayed about getting involved. He's learned about where he fits best. And he's even been given an opportunity to serve right in that particular ministry. He's been shown the sweet spot of ministry, and he was even led there by someone. But as soon as he gets to that ministry, as soon as he gets to that classroom, he's left to his own. Only with his thoughts, what do I do now? What happens if I have questions? What if I need something? What if I fail? So Sven serves for a while until something goes wrong and he becomes so frazzled that he quits because it's just too hard to do ministry like this. We can come up with a lot of reasons on why we don't do ministry. And some may be because of our own reasons. I, I wanted to add retired Ron to the mix. And, and there are some that say, you know what, I, I used to do that. And I no longer need to do that anymore. Let the, the younger people or the people that haven't done ministry for a while do that. I could have added that. I could have added a whole bunch more. But I want us to understand that just like the disciples, that we too find ourselves locked up. We find ourselves kept from doing the work of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that in the final words that Jesus had after his resurrection, they were all about going and serving him and the gospel ministry. If you want to be changed by Easter this year, then the change that needs to happen is that you need to ask yourself today, what am I doing to spread that message of Easter, to share that ministry of the resurrection to the world that needs it so badly around me? But how do we get there? 
How do we find ourselves being strengthened in that? And that's where we have to look at our text this morning. And we have to look very specifically at how the disciples went from being fearful to being faithful, to being locked up, to being sent out, and then apply that to our lives so that we can do the same. So notice there are four thoughts or truths to greater service that we are given in John's narrative here. And there are four things that strengthen our service. Notice what our text says, first of all, in verse 19. It tells us the following. It says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The first thing that we need to recognize and know with regards to our um, service to the Lord is that we have to embrace the peace. We have to embrace the peace. I wonder what the disciples were thinking when Jesus came into that room. They were locked up. They were fearful. And here Jesus enters without using any of the doors, without ever knocking. He just appears before them in their midst. The astonishment, the bewilderment must have been huge. Here was Jesus. The last time many of them had seen him, he had been arrested. Maybe in the middle of some of his beatings, Maybe they had seen him on the cross. No doubt they had heard that Jesus couldn't even be seen in in the appearance of a man because he was so badly beaten. And now this person, this thing was standing before them. The fear, my goodness, they must have been incredibly freaked out. And yet look at what Jesus says. Peace be with you. He shows him his hands and his side, and he says the, the, the idea there is it's really me, flesh and all, I'm here amongst you. And twice he gives this statement of peace. In the Jewish culture, this word is shalom. It means that it's a state of wholeness and harmony when it comes to all facets of life. Jesus was telling his disciples, and he was telling us today that because of his resurrection, we could experience tranquility and peace in a world of conflict and chaos. But as we reflect on this word peace, we're going to see a couple things. First of all, this was a word or a phrase that was unusual. It was unusual. Shalom, tranquility, harmony, peace. Jesus, are you kidding me? I wonder if the disciples were thinking that, Jesus, you can't be serious. Have you not read the Jerusalem Times? Though all of the city is in turmoil right now. They're going after us. They're they're looking for us. Jesus, don't you understand? Things aren't going very well. How can you speak about peace at a time like this? This is why we're locked up. This is why we find ourselves in this room. It's not been a good couple days for Christianity. And Jesus, you should know that uh, uh, more than anyone. And yet Jesus says, peace. For some this morning... Just like the disciples, the word peace is almost an affront to you. It is so unusual for you to hear that. Peace? Jesus, you want me to have peace? Jesus, don't you know I'm without a job? Jesus, don't you know what's left in the bank account? How can I have peace with that? Jesus, how can I have tranquility? How can I have harmony? Don't you know what my husband and I are fighting about? Don't you know where our kids find themselves right now? How can I have that kind of peace? Jesus, don't you know that the world is coming apart at its seams? 
How can you speak of peace in a world like this? Unusual words in a time of chaos. But notice that the words were understandable. They were understandable. Peace, Jesus said. He had spoken these words before. In fact, the last time Jesus had spoken these words of peace were the last time they were together. Turn just a couple pages back to John 16 for a moment. John 16, in that upper room, at the time of their last gathering together, just hours, in fact, just a, uh, probably uh, just a few short hours before he would be arrested, Jesus shares words about this peace. Notice in uh, John 16, verse 33, he says, I've told you these things, all of the things that he has shared from John 14 all the way through John 15 with the vine and the branches and the work of the Holy Spirit in John 16. He says, I have told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The disciples had heard this before. And I wonder when Jesus articulated those words that they remembered, Jesus said he was going to overcome. Jesus said that we didn't have to worry that even when troubles came, we might be able to look with great hope in our eyes to the hope of Jesus dealing with the situation. In fact, four times in his final hours, Jesus would tell his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Brothers and sisters, this morning, some of you are troubled. And there's nothing I can do for you. There's nothing that the person sitting next to you can do to take those troubles away. Oh, they may be able to help. They may be able to take some of the issues away. But peace is at the very heart of who we are. And if we don't have Jesus Christ giving us that peace, then there's no answer at all. But Jesus stands before you this morning, just as he did with the disciples, and he says, peace be with you. Believe it. Embrace it. Notice these words are undeniable. When Jesus spoke the word peace, I think the disciples knew that he meant business. I think they knew that this peace was legit and true. What a reminder that we are given of this thought of peace. The disciples had been there before. They had been in a time of chaos, in a time of confusion and struggle. Turn for a moment back to Mark, the Gospel of Mark for a moment. Just a couple books back from John. Mark chapter 4. And we're reminded of of Jesus Christ bringing peace to a time of great trouble and fear. In John, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. We are reminded of a truth that when Jesus says peace, peace can be found. It tells us in John, I'm sorry, Mark 4:35, that the day, that, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. A fur- furious squall came up, and when the waves broke over the boat, that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves 
obey him. I want you to understand that when you hear Jesus speak the word of peace, he can bring that. In your time of chaos, in your time of struggle, if you will just by faith say, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't understand why you would allow these tough situations to come, but I recognize that you are greater than the storm. You are greater than the chaos that I see in my life and that I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to have faith and I'm going to put my trust in you. One of my favorite Christian songs of all time is written by a man named Scott Kirpain, and he says these words about Jesus. Sometimes he calms the storm, and he whispers, peace be still. He can handle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. Sometimes he holds us close as the winds and rain go wild. Sometimes he calms the storm, but other times he calms his child. Some of you are going through a storm, and you're saying, Lord, When are you going to come? And I want you to know that if you're a child of his, he's right with you right now. He's by you, and he's holding you, and he's making sure you will make it through this time. Peace. Embrace the peace. Now, for some, it's not a problem or chaos that has created this issue of concern or anxiety. But for some, it's sin. Before we can leave this first point, we need to recognize that it wasn't just fear of the Jews that I think had them so worried and so uneasy. But when Jesus appears, he says a second time, peace be with you. Now, there's a lot of commentators that speak to various reasons on why he says that, and I want to address one that I think fits for my understanding of it, and that is when Jesus comes into the room and he announces peace to the room, He is announcing not just peace to their anxiety of the world around them, but the peace that they needed for the anxiety from within. You see, Jesus recognized when he entered into a room, he entered into a room of failures, of people who had denied him, of all of those who had scattered and ran for their lives instead of staying true to him at his arrest. And yet notice Jesus doesn't come in screaming and yelling He doesn't start telling them, I should have never picked you, especially you, man. I knew you were going to blow it. He doesn't do any of that. He just loves them and accepts them and gives them peace that they would need. Maybe today the chaos that you're dealing with is internal because you've pursued situations in life in regards to sin. And you're wondering, will he ever love me again? Jesus says to you today, peace It's time to embrace, my child, he is saying, that forgiveness. To show that I can be completely faithful even when you are faithless. We can never minister to a world of storms, my friends, until we have the peace that God gives so that we can finish the job. Notice the second thing this morning. They're not all as long as that, so don't get nervous. Examine the proof. Examine the proof. The next thing that Jesus does right away after announcing peace is he shows them his hands and his feet. And he does that. And I wonder if this is the experience that John was thinking about when he articulates in John chapter 1 the words, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. When Jesus comes into the room, he wants to prove right away he's no ghost, he's no phantom, but he is who he says he is because he did what he said he would do, and that is rise from the grave. Here I am. Look at me. Touch me. Understand that I am with you and I am in your presence. I want to prove to you that I've done what I said I was going to do. You see, without that proof, 
the disciples would have never stepped out of that room. They would have never gotten beyond their fear and their failure until with great confidence they were able to know that Jesus was who he said he was, that he did the things that he said he was going to do, and that he then would fulfill the promises yet fulfilled in the life of the disciples. And so he says, I want you to see me. I want you to know that I am with you. Now notice the response. They are overjoyed. They are filled with such incredible excitement and joy because Jesus had promised them that this would be the case. Again, John 16 uh, tells us some things that we need to be aware of in, with regards to this text. John 16:22 tells us, he says, uh, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. I want you to ask a couple questions this morning about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Number one, as you, exp- as you look and examine the, the word of the resurrection, does it fill you with joy? Does it excite you? Do you understand that unlike the uh, millions of Muslims around the world who go to Mecca and Medina to remember a dead prophet that we don't go to a grave, but that we know because he did what he said he would do, that he lives and resides within us by his Holy Spirit, and that now we have great access to God because he is not a dead prophet, but he is our risen Savior and Lord. Does that change you? Does that excite you? Does that get you up in the morning and thinking, how can I serve this risen Lord? How can I serve this risen Savior of mine who has done so much for me? What can I do in the feebleness of who I am to give just a little bit back in regards to that? Number two, as you examine the proof of the resurrection, do you understand that the proof of the resurrection allows for you to have confidence in the promises that are to come? Do you truly believe as you look at the promises that God gives that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he'll never give you anything that you are unable to handle, that he'll give you the Holy Spirit in greater measure as we humble ourselves and as we draw near to him, that we are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could ever ask or imagine because Christ is at work in us? Do we believe that for today based on what we've seen at that resurrected uh, body of Jesus Christ? Do we recognize that as we look back to the past, we are brought confidence to the future of what God would have for us as we serve him and as we worship him? I like what Isaiah 25, 9 says. This is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. When we embrace the peace, and examine the risen Christ, we will not only be convinced of the miracle of a raised life in Christ, but the miracle of life change that God wants to do in our lives as well. Notice verses 21 and 23, we see yet another uh, opportunity to strengthen our service, and that involves engaging as a ministry partner. Notice verse 21 through 23, it says the following. It says, Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Notice a couple things about this text that are great importance for us as we serve the Lord. First of all, Jesus comes into the room and he says something that I think probably blows the disciples away. And that is, he says, I'm sending you. Remember, they're in a locked room. They're afraid for their lives. And now Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to get out of here and I want you to do some things. Jesus, don't you know things have gotten a little hairy since last we saw you? Don't you understand that people aren't liking us very much? Don't you understand that it probably isn't a good idea to start going and communicating your gospel again? I mean, that could really cause us some trouble. I wonder if some of them thought, this is a great opportunity. We've got you, Jesus. Let's just commune together. You know, us 11 and no more. And let's just, let's just keep to ourselves. There's a lot of churches in our world today that say, we've got Jesus and we're so grateful to have Jesus. But let's not ruin this thing. Let's not cause ourselves any more pain and struggle. So let's just stay together. and Let's just be just a group unto ourselves. But Jesus says no. And notice what type of mission he wants to send them on. He says the phrase, as the Father sent me, now I send you. If you want to understand anything about your service, then understand that it's the same service that Jesus Christ showed as his example of obedience to his Father. Notice a couple things about this. First of all, the ministry of Jesus, and if we want to engage in it as partners, involves us seeking the lost. It involves us seeking the lost. We just can't sit in an upper room and be thankful that Jesus came and and has been risen just as he said he would so that he could save me. But we are called, just as Jesus was, to seek and to save that which was lost. And that means we've got to go on the initiative. People, lost people, aren't going to come to us and say, excuse me, you look like you're a holy and righteous person. Can you tell me the way of salvation? If they do that, come and tell me what you wore that day so I can wear that. But that usually isn't the case. Every time Jesus speaks about ministry, he talks about going, he talks about sending, he talks about us taking the initiative to a world that needs to hear the gospel. And so many of us are sitting and saying, I'd love to be a partner in ministry, but you've never gotten out of the locked room in your life. You've never stepped out in faith and said, it may mean some difficulty, it may mean some issues, but I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to go as the Father sent him, now I'm going to be sent, and I'm going to take the first steps in doing so. It's also going to involve speaking the truth. This isn't going to be easy, disciples. It's going to be filled with opposition. It's going to be uh, mean you're going to get a lot of enemies. But you're called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, people are going to be mad. They're not going to like you. In fact, they may hate you for it. And he says in his ministry, they hated me and they're going to hate you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. And we would be wise to understand that even in those moments when we want to water down the truth, when we want to be more pliable for the world, that it means that we've got to get a backbone and we have to stand in those times when we feel like every part of us wants to shy away. I never thought that I would have an illustration from this this week, but I did. Many of you know, and of course, uh, Scott prayed for it. I, I was given the opportunity last, uh, last week. I was called by uh, the office of the governor to come and, and give a prayer. I don't know how they found out about me, so whoever has given my name to the governor, stop doing that because I, there's some things I want to keep away from the governor. But uh, anyway... Uh, I got asked to come and to uh, do a special session of, of, uh, of the Senate, 
and I went, and I, I've done this before, and it was pretty uh, easy the last time, but went in and uh, went to uh, do that, got to uh, meet with some of the uh, uh, senators down there and uh, talk about what God's doing here. And about a minute before uh, the uh, session is about to take place, the majority leader comes in, and he greets me and says, uh, you're Pastor Tim Bedall? And I said, yeah. He says, how do you pronounce your name? I said, Bedall. He says, okay, let's go, move on. And then he stops, and again, the whole group is watching us at the front of the, of the room and auditorium there, and he says, I just want to make one real, th- one real quick thing uh, clear. And I think he's going to say, you know, good luck, thanks for coming or something like that. He says, I'm Jewish. And he says, if you name the name of Jesus, you will offend me greatly. And I'm sitting there, and we're, we're about to walk up, and I'm just a gut check. Oh, my goodness, what, what do I do? And then he calls me up, and, and, uh, and I'm sitting there going, what, what do I do? And uh, I start to pray. And uh, my first part of my prayer, and you'll be able to hear it. We've got the audio now that you can hear it, I think, on, on the website, or Keith will take care of that. But, but the first part of the prayer is, is all just very much giving God the praise and, and, and putting the proper positioning of who God is, and that the people that, that were working there and serving as sinners, they would know that God is, is the all in all, that he's the one that makes the decisions, he's the one that makes the rules. And at the end of it, my final phrase uh, my final paragraph, I'd say that my desire is for each of the senators to uh, know and make the um, life of Christ to be their example. The love of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary be their motive, and that the glory of Jesus Christ be their aim. And, And some of you asked the question, what was that guy's problem standing behind you? Some of you watched it on video. What was happening while I was praying that prayer was he was grumbling behind me. And he was seething. I turned around. The last time I did it, I turned around. The guy said, thank you very much, Pastor. We're so thankful to have you here and all of that. He turns around. He says, and just stared me down the whole time. I go to my place, wait for the pledge to be given, and he's not even looking at the flag. He is staring me down. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that when we preach Christ, people are going to hate us. And we need to be careful. I'm writing a letter to him because I don't want him to think that as a pastor, I just wanted to spite him. But I wanted him to know, how can I come, per your invitation, as a Christian pastor and not raise high the name of Jesus Christ? And if that offends you, I'm sorry, but I have to stay true to what God has made in me. And that's what I call you to do. And it's not easy. I'll tell you, and I want to make this so incredibly important point, every part of me wanted to run off that stage without saying the name of Jesus. And it's by the sheer grace of God that he held my overweight body there. It's not a place for you to laugh. (laughs) To stay there and to articulate those words without compromise. It's not because of your pastor. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we engage in that and we make a commitment to speak the truth, he will give us the power to do it even when we're faithless to be able to accomplish that on our own. 
Next, it involves, because of that, suffering well. Just very quickly, I need to finish this up. Suffering well. As we see Jesus' life, we see a life that's filled with suffering and hardship. He was called a man of sorrows. And if we are going to follow him, we are going to be a people of sorrows. Life isn't going to be easy. And so we need to, as Jesus did in the garden, focus on his will being done, not our will, not on our comfort, not on what we want, but on what God wants in our lives. And if God calls us to a life of suffering, let it be. If God calls us to a life of difficulty, praise be to God for allowing us to go through that for his name's sake. Finally, it involves showing forgiveness to, to all. Showing forgiveness to all. In verse 23, Jesus says something that is a bit confusing, and we need to understand what does he mean by it. He says that if we forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If we do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Write this down. With regards to forgiveness, Jesus provides it. With regards to forgiveness, Jesus provides it. We are to proclaim it. Jesus provides it. We are to proclaim it. And so when you tell someone based on the holy word of God, when they confess their sins, that you can say Jesus is faithful to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you can say that and you can be so incredibly assured of that. And that when someone rejects the name of Christ, you can assure them that heaven will not be their destination unless that decision changes. That which you forgive will be forgiven. That which you don't forgive will not be. Not because we have some forgiving power in our hands or in our hearts to be able to do that, but because our Lord and Savior announces it, we are to proclaim it. We're to show forgiveness to all. Now, that sounds like a tall order. And let me close with just a minute of this last point because I think this is the most important one. And I'd be, I'd be very wrong not to bring it up because the work of Christ is impossible. Serving Christ is never easy. In fact, it's impossible without Jesus coming through. And I want you to notice what he does. He says in verse 22 that he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. The last thing we need to do is embody his presence. You want to be a, a servant for Christ? You've got to be filled with the Spirit. You've got to be able to embody that presence. Now, this involved an expectation. Jesus is giving a sign of what is still to come, that his full presence would be seen soon there later at the day of Pentecost, and that they were going to be filled, and that they were going to see the Spirit revealed in their life. And it involves an example, because on that day of Pentecost, being filled with that Spirit, they were able to change the world for the cause of Christ. Now here's the thing. We are filled with that Spirit today just as that Spirit filled them on the day of Pentecost. And the only thing that we need to do is we need to be obedient. We need to confess sins that keep us separated from our God in fellowship. And we need to step out in faith knowing that that which is in us is greater than that which is in the world. And that we can change the world just as they did on the day of Pentecost. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to a ministry. Who's willing to stand up and take a step of faith and follow him? Who's willing to ask the Holy Spirit to allow them to go the extra mile, being empowered by him for a greater work in Christ? We can't do it without him. And without him, we will stay in our locked up rooms instead of being sent out to change the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for our time in your word today. And Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts this morning, that we would recognize that without you, we would be like the disciples, locked up, fearful, bewildered, 
unused for the work that you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would change that in us, that we would come face to face with you. And through that encounter, we would shake off the dust and cobwebs of our serving lives and start serving you in a new way. Father, it may mean me mean here at the church, and that's a great way to serve you. But Lord, this is not just an announcement or an advertisement to fill different roles that we have in the church, but it is a call for us to be the Christian soldiers you've called us to be. So Lord, I pray that whether it's in your Air Force, whether it's in your Navy, whether it's in your Army or your Marines, Lord, that we would enlist knowing that you're going to give us every tool and every weapon that we need to be victorious. And Lord, in doing that, that we would go boldly out into the world and wage war against the evil one and wage war against the pattern of life in this world. Lord, we recognize we can't do this without you. So fill us, change us, make us and mold us to be more like you so that we can do the work that you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.